Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us in your name today. Please, uh, in your kindness, speak to me, uh, speak to us all through the words that I've prepared. We pray that uh, you might help me to speak truthfully uh, and for your word to go to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that you are not too old to remember what it was like to be a school student, to be back in high school uh, on an occasion when the teacher had not shown up. Uh, At my high school, if the teacher failed to show up for the lesson and we were unsupervised for 45 minutes, we used to call it a bludge period. On one particular day, the timetable indicated that we had a double period of maths, an entire hour and a half, uh, and at the start of the lesson, our teacher, Mrs. Cannon, had not shown up. Well, this went on for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, no Mrs. Cannon, 30 minutes, no Mrs. Cannon, until it seemed very clear that she was not coming, and we were destined to have an hour and a half's bludge period. But at around the halfway mark, when period one turned to period two, and the classroom was at a peak of raucousness, I can still hear it to this very day. Mrs. Cannon passed away last year, shortly before our school reunion. Uh, Mrs. Cannon was Portuguese, and I can still hear to this very day her voice piercing the raucousness of the classroom as she said, Right. She had simply had her days wrong and uh, she thought that she had a free period so she'd gone for a walk. But at the end of that period she returned and she quickly set things to rights in the classroom and she got us working hard. Now I went to a pretty straight-laced school so there was rarely anything life-threatening that took place when the teacher wasn't there. Though I can remember one occasion when somebody threw a large wooden blackboard duster at a boy and drew an impressive amount of blood. In any case, it made an enormous difference when the teacher returned to the classroom. The teacher restored order. They punished those who had been doing the wrong thing. It probably is an exaggeration to say they also rewarded those who were doing the right thing. They they expected that, but, but they set things to rights. This world is like a classroom where the teacher is away. Every human, to some extent, is taking advantage of the situation to do what they want, thinking that the teacher is not coming back. The Bible teaches us, and the prophets especially announce, that the teacher is coming back. The disorder and the impunity will not continue indefinitely. The prophet Micah, whom we read as our Old Testament reading today, and we're going to cover during this Advent series because he's one of the prophets that announces the coming of Jesus hundreds of years before. The prophet announced to his contemporaries, and this is Micah chapter 1, verse 3. It's not printed for us in our yellow sheet, but it's in your Bibles on page 797. He says this, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. 
and the valleys split apart. The Lord is coming. And there was a clear worldly event that Micah was speaking about. It was the invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. The people were carried off into exile. And as it says in chapter 1, verse 6, God had said he would make Samaria a heap of rubble. This was a human event, but it was God's doing. This was God coming to hold his people to account for their idolatry, for their wickedness to each other, and for their turning away from him. Now, Micah was speaking to the southern kingdom, also called Judah. He was warning them to turn back to God, to turn away from their idols, otherwise God would come against them as he had with the northern kingdom. God did eventually come against the southern kingdom as well in 586 BC when Jerusalem fell and people there were carried off to exile in Babylon. But those comings of God to judge and punish throughout human history, they are just signs and precursors to the great, more literal if you like, coming of God when he comes and makes himself visible to all humanity. That time when everyone will see for themselves that he is the Lord and when he'll hold humanity to account. Now what they didn't understand in those days that this, is this, this great literal coming of God would be divided in two. Firstly, Jesus coming humbly uh, as a baby who would grow up to be the crucified saviour and his second coming for which we are still waiting and we Uh, hope every week in the Apostles' Creed, his second coming as the judge. From where we sit, we understand a great deal more about God's purposes than they did in Micah's day. We know that Jesus has been and we know that he is coming again. And as Jesus taught in the Gospel reading from Mark, we are to be ready That's the clear command, be ready for his return because you do not know when it will be. So for us it's even more true, if you like, than it was in Micah's day, that the Lord is coming. So we can learn from Micah and his contemporaries how we should respond to the news. Uh, This is my second point, if you're following the outline responding to the news, and I have three reflections on this. The first one is, pay attention. I want you to notice that the prophet demanded the attention of the people. Chapter 1, verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. The announcement that the Lord is coming is one that demands attention. And that is part of the nature of the message. In order to be faithful to the message, if you and I, for example, are sharing the message with somebody else, it's necessary to state it in a manner that demands attention. That doesn't necessarily just mean louder, but we must, we must expect people's attention. That is how Micah and all of the prophets operated. 
I once heard a story of a wife who was wanting to get back at her husband for the fact that he never listened to her. Uh, It just so happened that the husband had to catch an early plane and he had asked his wife to remind him. So she wrote him a note, you need to be at the airport in one hour. And she placed the note on his bedside table right next to where he was sound asleep in bed. Now, I don't know where I heard that story, and I rather doubt that it's true, but you get the point. Uh, if, you, if, you leave a, if you leave a written note to someone that they need to wake up, it's not going to hit, hit the mark, is it? It's possible to deliver a message in such an inappropriate way that it won't be heard and it won't be acted on. The prophetic message that the Lord is coming must be heard and it must be acted on. I heard another story, which I believe is true, of an evangelical revival preacher. It was a Wesley or a Whitfield or one of those guys who saw a man sleeping during his sermon. He stopped preaching. He singled out the man and he said, You, sir! I must be heard and I will be heard. Was that the right thing to do? Perhaps in the circumstances it was. I have not always felt led to do that when I've seen somebody drifting in one of my sermons. But I think what's right about it is that the the message is of life and death importance. And that needs to be conveyed. Otherwise, the message is not being conveyed truthfully. So, first point is pay attention, expect attention. Uh, My second reflection on how to respond to the message of the Lord's coming is that we must, whether we're hearers of the message or whether we're speakers of the message, we must be appropriately sad and compassionate at God's judgment on people. Sadness and compassion are different and both are necessary. In chapter 1, verses 8 to 16, again, you can find that in the printed Bibles, not in the yellow sheet, uh, we get an insight into Micah himself and it seems clear that Micah was uh, quite an emotional and and a demonstrative person who was bound up with his message. So it says in verse 8, "'Because of this I will weep and wail.'" I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Howling like a jackal. Now that's an intense response, isn't it? And then Micah takes us on a tour of various places. Gath, Beth Ophrah, Shephir, and his own hometown of Morasheth. And he shows us the people there in mourning, in Beth Ophrah, which means house of dust. He says, roll in the dust. Now, I figure that these are all places near where Micah grew up. These are his people who are coming under God's judgment. They're in mourning at the impact of this Assyrian invasion, which, let's not forget, has been sent by God. Micah is compassionate on his people and he's personally sad for his neighbourhood. 
And as Christians who believe that the Lord is coming in judgment and and knowing that so many people out there in Randwick and around the world today are simply oblivious to the judgment which is coming on them, should we be compassionate and sad for the loss? Yes, of course we should. It is sad for those who come under God's judgment and we haven't understood or communicated the message unless that is apparent. My third reflection is this. We must steer clear of the false prophets with their comforting lies. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, which, which is printed for us, uh, give us a sense of how Micah was received by his contemporaries. Micah must, of course, have had a little band of disciples who believed in him, but he certainly had opponents. Chapter 2, verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. The message of Micah's opponents was, don't worry, there's no need for any moral change. There's no need for a return to God. He hasn't left us. Nothing bad is going to happen. Now that message exists in every generation. It is a convenient, comforting message. It's basically the message which nullifies the whole gospel of Jesus because it says that no response is required. And naturally it comes in many different forms. And because the devil is cunning, there will always be an element of truth. There will always be a veneer of morality to the false prophet's message. But they all boil down to the same thing. Anyone who offers comfort to the complacent is one of these false prophets. Now, you have got to love Micah in chapter 2, verse 11, where he shows that he's probably an Australian. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be the prophet for these people. Now, you can be sure such a prophet will be well received in Australia, can't you? False prophets will always get a hearing because there's a market for them. Of course, people like it when they're told you can do exactly what you want and, 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 people, and, and, and you give them, giving people spiritual comfort for doing exactly what they want. Of course, people want that. But the message of the false prophets is ultimately a silly one. The false prophets are the guys who are insisting you can keep on doing what you like permanently because the teacher will never return to the classroom. Never. The false prophets are the the kids at school who are so cool and so popular because it's so fun to muck up when the teacher's not there but they don't look so good when the teacher actually returns, do they? When their advice is suddenly looking rather bad. So you see, the false prophet's message is a silly one. It's also wicked. What a wicked thing it is to do to give people false comfort, to tell people that they're fine when they're really rushing down the path to destruction. 
And how sad to indulge in false comfort when there is real comfort to be had. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 are the voice of God. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. And at the end of the verse, the king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. The tone of the book of Micah seems to me that these words of promise and comfort, they're they're whispered. But they're whispered with the sureness of a God who even 2,750 years ago had an unbreakable resolve to save his people. Was God going to come in judgment? Yes, of course he would. But he would also provide a way for his faithful ones to escape the judgment and be his forever. There was real comfort to be had by trusting that promise of God. There was comfort then and there is comfort now. Sure, it can be fun while the teacher is away as long as the chaos doesn't degenerate too much. But ultimately in our world, the real comfort is knowing that the teacher is returning and will set everything right. So, to conclude, how to be prophetic. Or maybe by... uh, Promising that I'm jumping the gun. Maybe some of us don't want to be prophetic just yet. It's certainly a hard road, isn't it, to be a prophet? But first of all, we must believe the prophetic message that the Lord is returning to judge and to save. And therefore, we need to have turned from our sins and be ready, waiting for Jesus to return. And if we're to share the message with the world, then we would do well to remember that it demands attention because it's life and death. We do well to remember that we ought to be sad and compassionate at God's judgment coming on those around us, but to avoid the false comfort of the false prophets and to seek the true comfort that is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that Jesus is returning to judge and to save. We pray that we might be ready and we ask, please, that you would give us a way of being prophets among the people that we know in the world to point them to the real hope that is in Jesus. Amen.